Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 75Live.com, and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio. Thank you to my lovely daughter for introducing me. This is, of course, Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, where I come to you every Sunday on the 8th and talk about the works of William Shakespeare, what I love about them, what I think you should read, and what I think you should enjoy. Now, Today, we're up to a brand new style for Shakespeare. Not just a new play, but a brand new style. We're closing in towards the end of Shakespeare's writing. If you've been listening along, you know that I've been taking apart Shakespeare's plays one at a time, roughly in the order they are written. Gone out of order a little bit. Uh, But we're now up to the early 1600s, where Shakespeare is transitioning not only out of the Elizabethan period into the Jacobean period, But he's also transitioning from writing plays that are just classified as tragedy, comedy, or history. In fact, several plays that Shakespeare writes as romances. Now, I'm not a scholar. I've said that before. I'm just somebody who happens to enjoy the works of William Shakespeare. And also, I'd enjoy hearing from you. If you'd like to send me a note, you can reach me at ShannonJRiley.com. That's ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm certainly be happy to talk any more about any subjects that I've brought up so far in these podcasts, as well as there's a bunch of short films at ShannonJRiley.com, some snippets of my plays. Check them out, and if you can, pass them on to someone who might produce one of these wonderful plays. I would love that. In the meantime, let's go back to talking about Shakespeare and today's play, Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Now, this is a Jacobean play, and again, it's classified by scholars as, well, some scholars anyway, as a romance. This is a new classification. It's because the shows are filled with tragedy and drama, but they almost all end happily. Shakespeare has learned that he wants to pull his audience in with the story and keep them engaged by the emotional content, but at the end, give them something to be happy about as they leave the theater. And he's not the only one. Other playwrights are following suit. Playwrights like Ben Johnson or Inigo Jones, they're also starting to write spectacles that are, first of all, larger than most of the other plays have been. Shakespeare starts using a lot of supernatural elements of stagecraft in his work. So do these other playwrights. And they start to write plays that are both funny and sad, powerful and heartwarming. And this is no different for Shakespeare. Shakespeare here is starting to write plays 
that he thinks audiences should enjoy and be swept away with. But he's also doing something else. He starts working with collaborators again. Shakespeare has not worked with collaborators for a long time, not since his early days as a writer, but he's now starting to pick this up again, and it's pretty easy to see why. By the way, if you're listening to a bunch of background noise today, I usually record all these shows in my sweet dining room where the acoustics are the best. We have some house renovations going on right now, so I'm on my back patio. So if you hear birds in the background or traffic going by, just try to remember it's a nice summer afternoon and we're spending it with Shakespeare. All right, going on, as I said before, Shakespeare is starting to work with collaborators again, and it's easy to see why. Shakespeare is looking to retire. At the best guess, if you give it the widest berth of what Shakespeare has been writing, he started roughly around 1585, and he ends, retires, around 1613. That's 28 years. But he's not just a writer for 28 years. He's an absentee husband for 28 years. He's an absentee father for 28 years. He's an absentee son for 28 years. And it is starting to take his toll. There's evidence that Shakespeare continues to return home on a much more regular basis here. It used to be about once a year, maybe twice a year. It seems to increase around this time. And it's not hard to see why. First of all, Shakespeare's father dies in 1601. His mother dies in 1608, about the time where this play is written. He's already lost three sisters, but they all died when he was young and when he was living at home. But in 1607, he loses his brother Edmund. He'll go on to lose Gilbert in 1612 and his brother Richard in 1613. And don't forget, he lost his son Hamlet at 1599. He has a wife and two daughters at home and he doesn't really know them. And he wants to know them. He wants to return home to at least be a father. You see this in his writing. He goes from male-centered stories to a lot of stories about men and their daughters. And that populates these romances greatly. His love as being a father, his love for a daughter, and also his inability to know what it's really like to raise a daughter. All of these fathers are somehow separated mentally or physically from their daughters and they're anxious to understand the inner workings of that relationship. This dominates Shakespeare's writing, but it also suggests to us that Shakespeare himself is looking for a successor. He doesn't want to leave his company out in the cold without a writer. And so here we have Pericles, Prince of Tyre, a Jacobean play written roughly around 1608. And he's working with another writer, probably a writer by the name of George Wilkins. Now we know this because George Wilkins goes on to publish a novelized version of the play almost right away. There's a novelized version of Pericles, Prince of Tyre, suddenly in print. There's no evidence there was any such story beforehand, no evidence there was any other play that was running at that time. So it's obvious to us that George Wilkins helped write this play. And it is different. The beginning of the play is very different from the end of the play. And it's believed Shakespeare wrote the end, George wrote the beginning, possibly based on some of his own writing. But it's the ending of the play that is going to be greatly impacting the success of the play. What's also important to point out is that this play did not appear in the first folio. Hemings and Condal, for one reason or another, decided not to include it. It ends up in the third folio, but not in the first or second folio. And we believe this is because they might have thought that the play was inferior or incomplete. 
mainly because Shakespeare only wrote the end of the play. But we don't know because they go on to include other plays that Shakespeare wrote with someone else, including his masterpiece, my personal favorite, The Tempest. So it's very possible that they just didn't either have a complete version of the play, or perhaps they didn't think much of George Wilkes' writing. In truth, George Wilkes was only a writer for roughly about three years, and so it's very possible that as a collaborator, he gave very little to the process, and it was Shakespeare's writing at the end of the play that was really the standout part. And we know for a fact it was around 1608, because there is a reference by a Venetian ambassador to England who saw the play in November around 1608. So I have a historical placement for when the play was done. And it's even said that this play, when it was first published in its first folio around 1608, that it was first printed and often acted at the Globe Theatre. We, of course, before I go through the synopsis, we have to do my boy's favorite part. And Finn, what's that part? And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, Shakespeare's Quote of the Weeks, and they're all going to come from Pericles. And it's not the most quotable play, I will admit, but I think there's some very profound things that are said in Pericles. First of all, Pericles in Act 1, Scene 1 says, Few love to hear the sins, they love to act. <laughs> I love that. How many things are we all hiding? There's also this great line in Act 1, Scene 1 from Pericles. Murders as near to lust as flame to smoke. <laughs> and then finally, Tis time to fear when tyrants sing to kiss. Pericles, Act 1, Scene 2. It's an epic story, Pericles. It takes place over many, many years, and I'm pretty certain most of you do not know it. It is a rarely acted show. Very few people have ever seen it in performance, including myself. I have never seen it in performance. But I'm going to go through the synopsis really quickly, or at least as far as I can go right now, before I run out of time. And we'll talk about the play more in depth on the other side. Now, we're going to start off, first of all, in Act 1. We're introduced to a guy by the name of Gower. He's a poet. And Gower is going to introduce the story of... Pericles. It's an interesting idea that Shakespeare has where he has someone walk out and end up being a narrator, rather than having the play play out itself as other plays do. Anyway, Gower comes out. He wants to tell us a story about a guy by the name of King Antiochus. Now, the king is very powerful, and he has a beautiful daughter, and he's promised her hand in marriage to the man who can solve his impossible riddle. But if they can solve that riddle, they will be killed. It's his way of keeping his daughter close. Nearby is a wonderful, handsome prince, Pericles, who decides he can solve this riddle, and he travels to Antioch to try his hand. When he's given the impossible riddle, he figures out the clues. And Pericles, when he figures it out, realizes he is revealing an inappropriate relationship that the king has with his own daughter. This king of a very powerful land is having an incestuous relationship with his own daughter. And Pericles knows if he solves the riddle and announces this, he'll be put to death. But if he doesn't solve the riddle, he'll be put to death. So he flees for his life. King Antiochus, though, can tell that Pericles has figured it out. And he's even more concerned that Pericles may tell someone about his horrible secret. So he tells his servant, Thyleart, to go and murder Pericles. And Thyleart follows Pericles back to Tyre. Now, as soon as he gets home, Pericles confides in what he has discovered to his lord, Helicanus. 
Heliconus, his friend, advises the prince to travel the world, go abroad, do whatever you can, but do not come back to Tyre. Because if you do, Antiochus will kill us all. So get out of here and stay gone. In the meantime, I will rule in your stead. So off he goes. He loads up his ship and Pericles heads off for warmer seas. Meanwhile, the governor of Tarsus, Cleon, and his wife, Dionysia, bewail the fact that they're in the middle of this horrible famine and they know that their people are going to die. Pericles learns of their troubles and he arrives with a boatload of food to save them all. While he's there, Helicana sends news to Pericles, warning him that the assassins are still hot on his trail and the prince better set sail again. So he can't stay where he's helped these people, so he gets aboard his ship and takes off a second time. This time, horrible storms wreck his ship at sea, and he alone survives the terrible storm. He washes up on shore and is discovered by a group of fishermen. From these fishermen, he learns that he is in the land of King Siamides, and he has a beautiful daughter by the name of Thaisa. And he also learns that there is a very special jousting contest coming up, and the champion will win the hand of Thaisa. Well, the fishermen continue fishing on their nets. While they're fishing, they happen get this, happen to pull ashore a suit of armor. It's Pericles' suit of armor, and it's the only thing that survived the shipwreck. Pericles convinces him to let him take it so that he can continue on his way and win the hand of Thaisa. And that's exactly what he does. Pericles fights five knights and is named champion. He's given a feast by Siamides and wins the love of Thaisa. Pericles remains in court for several months and they are married. But then he hears news from his friend Heliconus that Antiochus and his daughter are dead and they may safely return home. Meanwhile, in Tyre, the lords have waited in hope that their prince would return and take over ruling. So Pericles sets sail with Thaisa, who's now pregnant with his child, to reclaim his throne in Tyre. Well, of course, he gets aboard his boat in Act 3, and there's storms once again. Thaisa gives birth to his daughter, but she unfortunately dies during childbirth. He's pressured by the crew that it's unlucky to keep a dead body aboard a ship, so they seal her body in a coffin and cast it overboard. Pericles puts inside it a note to please give a burial befitting that of a queen, and he names his newborn baby Marina, since she was born aboard a ship. They're able to survive the storm, and he makes it back to his friend Cleone in Dionysia before returning to Tyr. Well, early the next morning, the sealed box washes up on the shore of Ephesus. They call a doctor who finds Thaisa sleeping, body inside, along with jewels and the letter from Pericles. They revive her, and when she's certain that her husband and baby have obviously drowned at sea and she has no hope of finding them, Thaisa goes to live in a nearby temple and devotes her life to the goddess Diana. And that is the first three acts of Pericles, and we haven't even gotten to Shakespeare's writing yet. <laughs> it's a very complicated story, and we'll pick up on the rest of it after this short break. Right here is where I would say, now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So, for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com.
Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, your host for a half hour talk about Pericles, the Prince of Tyre. Not one of the most well known plays of Shakespeare's, but it is really an interesting play, and I'm just now up to the stuff that Shakespeare himself wrote. Many scholars believe the first half of the play, a little bit over half, was written by a man by the name of George Wilkins, but that the last part of the play was written by him. Now, when I last left you in our story, Pericles is on a boat heading back to Tyre, where he's going to be crowned as king. His wife gives birth to his daughter Marina, while a great storm is going on, dies in childbirth, is set overboard in a watertight coffin. She ends up on a shore where she is revived, and it turns out that she is not dead, but she thinks that her husband and daughter are dead, and she dedicates herself to living the life of basically a nun in the Tower of Diana. Now, in Act 4, our narrator, Gower, explains how 15 years have now passed, and Marina grows up with Cleon's daughter, Philotine. But Cleon's wife is very jealous that Marina's beauty and absolute presence completely diminishes her own daughters, and she decides to have Marina killed. Just as Marina is about to be killed, however, pirates capture the girl and carry her off to be sold into slavery as a prostitute. Marina's reported beauty has attracted many men, yet she has the gift of speaking to men and calming them, so much so that she persuades everyone not to violate her virginity. In fact, many men leave resolved to lead better lives after meeting her. Eventually, the owner of the brothel lets her leave to become a waiting maid because he's making absolutely no money off of her, and she has great skills as both a singer and in sewing and in dance. Meanwhile, Pericles, who has returned to become king of Tyre, has returned with Helicanus to Tarsus to pick up his daughter Marina after 15 years. 15 years he's been separated from his daughter, who he left behind with his dear friend Cleone. But he is unfortunately shown a false tomb and told that her daughter died shortly after he left. Distraught by his daughter's loss, Pericles decides to never have enjoyment in his life again. And he will never wash his face nor cut his hair, and he takes to the seas to sail at random until he eventually dies. His ship eventually comes upon the very island where his daughter Marina was once forced to work in a brothel. The governor welcomes him, but he hears of how withdrawn the prince is and how depressed, so he sends to him the one person who he knows in the entire island who makes men feel better, the young woman by the name of Marina. Marina comes aboard and starts talking to Pericles. Now in Act 5, Pericles initially rejects Marina, but when she tells him his name, her name and the story of her birth at sea, Pericles realizes, oh my gosh, this is my lost daughter. She is not dead, and he is overcome with happiness. That night, as he sleeps, he dreams of Diana's temple at Ephesus, and realizes he must go there to give thanks for the return of his daughter. He resolves to go to the temple, and he sails there with Marina. Pericles arrives in Ephesus and tells his story to the priestess, only to discover that the very priestess is his wife, Thaisa. The three of them are joyously reunited, and they return to Tyre. Gower ends the tale to tell us news that Cleon and his vicious wife have been killed by an uprising due to their terrible treatment of the beautiful Marina. And that is the end of Pericles, Prince of Tyre. So there's a little bit to unpack here, and I want to talk a little bit about that. 
First of all, I want to talk about that question of why it wasn't included in the first folio. Obviously, we will never know. But what's also fascinating is when it is finally included in the third folio, it's included with six other plays, five of which Shakespeare most definitely did not write. So for many years, Pericles was dubious at best. Some people thought it might have been a play that Shakespeare just sort of dabbled in, but obviously somebody else wrote it. It's not Shakespeare's. And for over a hundred years, it was considered not to truly be the work of William Shakespeare. It wasn't until much later when people started recognizing the language at the end of the play and how much the last 827 lines, the main portion of that scene with the story of Pericles and Marina coming together, how much it had used the same words, the same kind of verbiage, the same kind of syntax that was used by Shakespeare. And it finally was recognized as being at least partially a William Shakespeare play. Some people, some scholars believe that it is indeed not Shakespeare at all. Some believe it was written entirely by Shakespeare. It's one of those things that if they ever do develop a time machine, we've got to go back and talk to this guy to find out what he did and what he didn't do. Now, the only published text of Pericles that exists from the time of Shakespeare's life was published in a quarto in 1609. But it had subsequent errors, and it had several reprints off the original that made even more errors. It was clumsily written, it was at times incomprehensible and hard to interpret. So that might have been the reason why Hemings and Condell did not want to include it in the first folio, and that by the time they came around to printing the third folio, a cleaner and more complete version of the play had been located, and it was able to be included in that quarto. But it was also one of Shakespeare's most successful plays during his lifetime. So, and it's listed in his lifetime as being a play by Shakespeare. Although, truth be known, his name was so popular that there were people putting his name on things that he had nothing to do with. So we really do believe that this play, in the end, is at least halfway written by William Shakespeare. But it's more important now to talk really about the romance, since that's going to dominate the rest of our conversations for the next few weeks as we finish up looking at Shakespeare's plays. Every other play we see now, coming after this, is sometimes, or by some people, classified as a romance, except for one, his final history play, Henry VIII, which he also didn't write alone. Matter of fact, the only play left that I believe is sole authorship is The Tempest, and it's a great play, and it is very autobiographical, and very much about what Shakespeare is facing at the time of his writing. But I want to talk about these romances before I get ahead of myself. They're the last plays of Shakespeare. They are Pericles, Prince of Tyre, there's Cymbeline, there's Winter's Tale, The Tempest, and The Two Noble Kinsmen. These are the last plays of Shakespeare. They were all co-authored except for The Tempest. And it's this romance title that is very interesting. You see, they were looking for another way to register what this play was. And you can kind of say that Pericles is a romance since Pericles is reunited with his wife at the end and they obviously loved each other deeply. But the main body of this story isn't about Pericles and his wife. It's really more about Pericles' struggle and Marina's struggle. Marina is an amazing character of Shakespeare. She's young, she's vital, she's smart, she dances well, 
and she can protect her virtue. I want to underline that point. She can protect her virtue. This is a dad writing about his imaginary daughter. This is a dad writing about what relationship he wants to have with his daughter. And this is a man who's saying how much is he knows he missed in her childhood. Heracles is separated by 15 years from these girls. Susanna was probably about six when Shakespeare left, and he's been gone now nearly 30 years. This is a person who misses out on so much and does not realize it until he's older. As an old father myself, I have come to appreciate so much more those years I had with toddlers and babies in my arm than I did when I was holding those babies. I think I appreciated it then, but not near as much as I appreciate it now and how much I think of those times. Shakespeare is looking back at a life as a playwright, as a poet, as a celebrity, and asking himself, was this worth it? And what awaits me at the end? When I do go back home, who will meet me? Who will greet me? Will I be welcomed, or will I be forgotten about? The other thing these romances have in common, and it's very rare for Shakespeare, and that's spectacular effects. Now, Shakespeare played with magic in many of his plays. Midsummer's Night Dream, of course, it stands out as one. He even deals and dabbles in potions I can make back, the cash back and like in Romeo and Juliet. Of your first year. But now he starts treating really full magic. In and in Pericles, you have his wife basically being resurrected by a magic supply. potion by the governor of an island who also happens to be a healer. You have Marina, able to use her words to cast a spell on the men who would violate her to keep herself pure. We have the building of all of this late stage magic craft that Shakespeare wants and loves. He uses this magic and these large spectacular sets, these large spectacular designs, to, at least for Elizabethan period, to try and bolster his story, make it more than life itself. Keep in mind, Elizabethans just did not believe in scenery. They said, if we're in a forest of Arden, we're in a forest of Arden. If they said, here we are on the ramparts of a castle, we were on the ramparts of a castle. They didn't worry about de denoting it by large set pieces. Yet suddenly you have Shakespeare saying that he has to have a rock that, uh, that Prospero climbs on top of in the Tempest. He has to have this man floating at sea. This Pericles floats at sea a lot in this play. And he had a working boat. So there is evidence that Shakespeare is starting to desire much more stagecraft, much more control over his stories, and much more theatrical presence. Shakespeare is writing for an audience beyond himself. We start to see him saying, I want my works to be remembered. And he has a genuine fear they won't be. The idea of publishing your complete works had not been heard of before. It doesn't happen until after he dies, when Ben Jonson, one of his competitors and friends, decides to collect all of his plays and publish his works, that Hemings and Connell get the idea to do the same thing for their old buddy Bill. 
Shakespeare is dead by then. So you see a man who is really rooted in his art, asking bigger, more important questions about life, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father, a husband, a citizen. But he's also asking questions of himself. What will await him in the end? What will he find when he's reunited with a family that he just really does not know? A family that he felt very easy to divorce himself from early in his life. And now he, he's desperate to rekindle. And you see that over and over again in these romances. They are characters that are larger than life. They are broad characters. They are spectacular themes that are introduced. Playing with reality. Playing with magic. But in the end, they all end happily. They don't resolve quickly either. Things just immediately falling into place. No, there's no moment of danger that drives all the action right back to the solution. Instead, they focus on relationships. And they mainly focus on the relationships of a father and a daughter. Shakespeare returns. He finally retires in 1613. And he returns to his home in Stratford-upon-Avon. To a wife he had not seen for a long time. And to two daughters who practically do not know him. And this is what encompasses his final works. The fear of what he might find. So, that's what we're going to discover in the next few weeks as we look at these final plays, The Romances of William Shakespeare. I'm Shannon Wright. I hope you enjoyed the Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and I hope you tune back in with me next week as we'll continue to climb through these romances and talk about the final years of William Shakespeare. Thank you for tuning in. Until we see each other again, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye. <laughs>